and we need to teach them how to keep going. So I love that part about who we are and how we continue to stay that way and not get sucked into us to stay with a client forever just to stay with a client forever. We just don't do that. Welcome to Modern Business Operations, where we talk with leaders about how ops is adapting to our modern world. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Modern Business Operations. Today, I'm talking with Mark Stelzner, who is the founder and managing principal at IA, and Kimberly Carroll, who is managing principal at IA. Guys, welcome, and thank you for being here. Good to be here. Thanks, Beth. I want to start just by asking you each a bit about your background and your current role. Kimberly, why don't we start with you? Sure. So I have been at IA for 10 years. I just celebrated my uh, 10th year last month, I guess. And I have been in the HR transformation business for about 25 plus years. Not only HR, but HR, finance, IT. So I kind of have a wore a lot of hats throughout my career, founded my way to IA, which I was very lucky to do, and have been here just looking at transformation across different industries, different companies, and different sizes of companies. So it's been a pleasure doing this work, and I love it. Great. Mark, how about you? Mark Stelzner, founder and co-leader with Kimberly. What a 10-year period, huh, my friend? It is so good to be with you. And Kimberly is fantastic, has supported some of our most complex and interesting transformations. But I have about three decades People transformation experience have covered every geography, vertical size that one can imagine and have the good grace of co-leading this wonderful firm with Kimberly and working with, honestly, some of the most interesting brands in the world. So good to be here talking with you, Seth. Thank you. Absolutely. And tell us just a little bit more about what IA does. We don't usually talk about the company necessarily, but you guys are kind of unique in terms of many of the guests we have. So just tell us a bit about IA. Yeah, absolutely. So we're an independent advisory firm to the C-suite of organizations ranging from 500 to 500,000 employees. Could be headquartered anywhere, could be focused on every market segment. Our clients range from the organization that created the Las Vegas sign all the way up to some of the largest athletic brands and technology brands in the world. And so what we do is really three things. One is we help the C-suite, the chief people officer, CHRO, with her agenda, strategy, prioritization, execution, roadmap. Basically, what does she care about in what order with one dependencies to what outcomes? We all know with today's complexity of the world, no one can go it alone. So we also run a lot of selections where we're finding those best fit providers from among the tens of thousands of capable technology service and support providers around the world so to support anything in the hire to retire lifecycle to bring that vision and ideation to life. And then our most popular, and I'd say our fastest increasing practice is something Kimberly created for us, which is process improvement. Kimberly, you want to speak to that? Absolutely. So process optimization is key. So you can't really go select a technology unless you actually understand yourselves and understand what processes you want to go to. So I will tell you a little story. When I first came to IA, we didn't have anything like that. Went to my first client and I opened a blank sheet and I said, what are your requirements? And I think I remember walking out going, Mark, we can never do that again. We really started current state assessment of what their processes look like and do some future state design to really make these companies really think through the processes themselves versus thinking just about what a technology can do for them. Excellent. And it is a growing process. Got it. And I want to start with a sort of a funny question because this came up when we were sort of preparing for this call. And to be clear, I love parsing words as a writer I really enjoy getting down into the details of the definitions and using the right words. 
And Mark, you don't like the term digital transformation. You like to remove the word digital from that conversation. Tell us about that. Yeah. And it's not to say, Seth, that digital isn't important, doesn't contribute materially, especially in today's environment. But we see digitization, technological enablement as one facet of an organization's broad transformation. I mean, for transformations to really be successful, this is about cultural transformation. This is about behavioral transformation. This is about organizational transformation. And I know we'll talk about this a little later. It's also a combination of high tech and high touch. So a lot of the consulting firms in the world, advisory firms tend to index highly on digital transformation. Because the perception is that every organization in the world can benefit from digitization or digital design or digital enablement. We agree with it. We just put the and around it. And therefore, when we talk about this topic more broadly, we feel like it is all consuming. And we're also talking about humans, right? At the center of every digital transformation, as it were, are humans that are interacting with tools and technology and also affecting the design and delivery of those technologies. So that's why we redacted digital from the conversation. Kimberly, what would you add from your lens? Well, and just going back to the process optimization is learning yourselves first and allowing technology to enable. And digital means that you're leading with, if you're doing a digital transformation, you're leading with technology. And we don't believe that. So when we do this work, we think about how to, and Mark brought it up about culture and behavior. Those two are We've done some webinars on culture and behavior. Most of the time, it's behavioral challenges and it's not your culture. Bad process, it's based on your culture. So we want to uncover that before you go out and select technologies. We've had clients where their first thought was, we have system limitations, we need to move to something else. And that's their transformation. And we've gone on and said, you haven't taken a release in 10 years. So is it really the technology or is it you? That's why we're not big on digital transformation. We really want to uncover the problems and fix them so that they go forward, they're not having those same challenges. That is very much what our company has come to at Tonkin is the people first idea. In my past work as a journalist focusing on AI, it always came back to that every time. If you take people out of the equation, the technology doesn't make sense and it doesn't actually work. It doesn't function properly if you don't take that people first approach. So I, I love that that is your approach as well. Tell us a bit about what are some of the biggest challenges or barriers or pain points to effective transformation in HR? I think foundation. I mean, people, yes, Kimberly, we've had, we've had some very challenging moments and worked with some very challenging and super interesting boards of directors of some of these amazing organizations. But the first thing is alignment, sort of a common point of view, a true north, a destination, a hypothesis, right? What do we believe we're transforming to? And although there's a temptation, Seth, as you've probably seen at the end, to create a logo cake and cut it and do the photo op and paste it all over social media, the transformation's never over. So also it's about internal readiness to own and continue the transformation. You know, when we think about tools and tech, a lot of people celebrate that go live moment, but that's just the beginning of a constant iteration of continuous improvement throughout the organization. So internal readiness, alignment, resourcing, but really having a common understanding of what the destination looks like. Now, the journey, the approach that you take to achieve that destination, if in fact that is maintained as your destination, given the fluid nature of business right now, we can go all kinds of different directions. We can take any number of approaches to get there. But do we have alignment? Do we have resources? Dare I say, do we have budget? Do we have a false premise? We're presenting on this at a large conference later this fall, but 
do we have an accurate and defensible return on investment? If we're talking about things that like, well, every manager is going to save 10 hours a week. And if we multiply that by all of their combined income, we're going to save $400 million a year. Well, guess what? Those 10 minutes are going to go back to something else. So how do we really defend what we're going after and how do we get organized and ready to execute? And it sounds easy to say, but I'd say this is one of the initial barriers to even getting started. Kimberly, round me out. Yeah. So I would also call out that it's understanding what HR really should be doing. A lot of times HR is the transactional arm of the organization because nobody else wants to do that work. We have to change that mindset. We are under the mindset that HR should really be focused on talent. You know, what are those talent programs? How do you help with those objectives of the business leaders to make sure you're bringing in and you're retaining the talent? That's what they should be focused on. But they don't do that. But it's not just the organization that thinks that HR has a hard time with that. HR has a hard time stepping back because they're such a, what they would call a serving culture. That's what they are. But they don't realize that they're actually being a disservice to the organization by taking on all of that, I say, transactional work. So I think that's another barrier to successful transformations is HR itself and not being able to step out of what they normally do. Well, so then how about the flip side of that? And you guys began to allude to some of the things you should do. What are some of the best practices or approaches that HR teams should be following as they look towards transformation? I mean, they have to get to know themselves. They have to truly understand where they are, where they sit, and they have to have a good leader that's going to help them think differently into the next phase of what HR really should be. So really, that's why we've talked about process optimization. It seems like everything goes back to that, but it really has to happen. Because like I'm working right now with a client that has never put it down on paper. They don't even have good SOPs or procedure documents. So they don't have all of that. So they don't really know what they're doing. So that I think is really key to at least start the process so that they can truly understand what they are doing today so that they can then think about how to transform in the future. And I'd say, Kimberly, around that, what we find, and this isn't surprising given the size and complexity of some of these organizations, but that the C-suite or sponsored leaders or boards of these organizations have little to no situational awareness of the meat grinder that HR has put through every single day to achieve a simple report or a PowerPoint or an outcome or whatever they're trying to pull together because they're largely protected from that approach. But we're so forensic, we consider ourselves up like HR private investigators. Like We pull all this insight and elicit these pain points and opportunities And we draw, I know you're big fans of this, we draw these really, really complex process maps that are reflecting the current state of the organization. And you can't look away from it. We, Kimberly, I presented to the board of a large global Swedish-based organization just a few weeks ago, in fact. And the recognition across their entire leadership team is we had no idea. And then that leads to, and no wonder, dot, 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 we're not able to get to these key initiatives, et cetera. So that situational awareness and having that level of documentation that Kimberly is advocating for gives you the ability to weaponize, dare I say, the current state to make sure that we, in fact, are going to transform, meaning this is untenable. And now that everyone knows why it's untenable, then we can decide what we're going to change in what order to what outcome. The other thing that's required, and I know this sounds silly, is budget and resources, transformation is difficult to achieve off the side of your desk. So when you look at your transformation teams, whether they be dedicated or designated, we have to make sure that the most transformationally minded individuals have the capacity and the capability 
to pursue this future state and to bring their ideation and execution forward. And it's very difficult to achieve when they're carrying two or three hats concurrently, especially because we all know HR doesn't bounce back from recessions. We just get smaller, right, as, as a function. And our remit to Kimberly's release point seems to get larger and larger, particularly as we came out of the pandemic. So if we can see who we are, if we can define who we want to be, if we can align the right internal and external resources, and we can provide an accurate level of funding, we have at least the foundation for success. And I think that's a great place to start. This episode is brought to you by Tonkeen. Tonkeen's process experience platform seamlessly wraps around existing policies and systems, allowing internal service teams to do more with what they already have. Build process experiences that are personalized for each requester and use AI to automate the intake, triage, and resolution of every request. Maximize adoption, compliance, and efficiency with no change management and no code. And I think it's always worth reiterating a couple of things you said about the plight of HR, how it's always never enough HR professionals and they're always asked to do so much and how, yeah, and how that team, that staff never seems to grow, only shrink. When you've been fortunate to be in an organization with really good HR people, I work with one now who's just fabulous and I never understand how she pulls it off. And I think it must be really hard. And no one knows, right? Because they just handle it with grace and aplomb and it just, it gets done. Certainly an underappreciated role for the most part. Maybe to that point, honestly, that's why no one can go it alone right now. I mean, if you just look at here in the States, like our legislative and regulatory environment and the speed at which things are changing for good or bad, depending on your point of view, if you're a medium or large size organization with employees in a wide variety of locations, it is virtually impossible to stay abreast of everything that's going on in that environment, just to be compliant, just to the foundation of basic compliance. And although you can't outsource the accountability, you can share the risk by working with capable third parties who can absolutely provide you with the data, the intelligence, the execution, the tooling to make that wonderful HR business part there that you're referring to that much more successful because she's in a position of having the undergirding of these large formidable providers that can give her that sanctity and protection and information. So I want to start talking about tech debt a little bit, but I want to preface that with a clarifying question. We've talked a bit about leading not with tech, leading with people. I want you to just be very clear with the listening audience. What's the difference between being tech-enabled versus being tech-led? So tech-enabled is that you are knowing what you want the technology to do. You have a point of view about the processes that you want to be supported by technology. So you go in with a point of view and that system or that technology is now configured or enabled to be able to support your point of view. Tech enable or tech led means that you're just taking whatever the technology does and it's putting in your processes based on how you have bought a technology. And what we have seen with our clients is as soon as they do that and they don't have a point of view of their processes, they start building processes around the technology. And so now you've got Excel happening. You've got other technologies that might be deployed because they never came out with a point of view. I have a client that was 100,000 employees across three different countries that did that. They just deployed a technology. And then you know five years later, they're like, well, why are we spending so much money? And that was because they had all of this other technology that was coming into play because they never did that work ahead of time. 
So that's why that's the difference between tech led and tech enabled. Yeah, to the point of tech debt, then what we see is, and shame on that provider and their system implementation partner, frankly, because it's easy to take the money and just deliver and not push back. But the reality is you're doing your clients a terrible disservice. So the notion of tech debt then is, have we achieved the ROI that was promised by the technology? Number one, right? It was a codified and defensible business case created. And have we gone back and audited the achievement of that business case? And did we exceed, fall behind or fall way below, frankly, expectations, which is unfortunately the commonplace. We were brought into that particular client after all of this happened to sort of clean things up and get them back on the right track. So one facet of tech debt is, did you get to your original ROI? The second facet of tech debt, you know, we're leasing these tools and organizations are innovating at a relentless pace, which is super, super exciting. There's new capabilities within the released features and functionality that you've already bought, let alone new capabilities emerging every day from every provider across every corner of the world. But the problem is organizations are often struggling with the organization and absorption of that innovation. So those release notes are not being consumed. Everything that can be turned off is left off. And you can get just as behind in the cloud as you were in the old on-premise days, or you pre-bought SKUs or capabilities that you never turned on and you thought you would. So you've started to incur this debt, which is a high percentage of the licenses, right? The fees per employee per month, per employee per year, SaaS space, whatever it may be. And you're not getting that. So the cynicism that then grows and we see at the C-suite is there is logically a moment where someone questions, why didn't we achieve what was promised? And then from an ongoing run rate, from an OPEX standpoint, why do we continue to spend this amount? in this category with this provider and to what outcomes? And are we taking advantage of it? One manifestation we see is people plug in all these surrounding tools and technologies because they're not even situationally aware of the wonderful and increased capability that the existing tooling could bring forward. So that creates a massive amount of tech debt and frankly, perception management issues as you roll up and down the organization. And the only thing I would add to that is that because organizations, we've asked several of our clients, how much are you spending Currently, how do you even know how much you're spending on payroll or do you even know how much you're spending on HR? And they can't answer the question because it gets hidden. It gets hidden in a GNA line item and they just don't know. So once you actually start asking that question and they start uncovering what it really is, they're paying two, three times what they should be paying. That's when they actually start the transformation. That could be one of those catalysts for the change to actually really look at it and move forward and change the way they're thinking about it. One question that I have, especially that covers your expertise, where you work with companies of such massive different sizes, you know, when you're a few people on a team you're running a startup, you can kind of muscle things through, Like You don't really have to refine your processes because there just aren't that many. But every time you add more people or more layers to your organization, right, it's just orders of magnitude more complex. Every little tiny thing becomes larger and larger. I just wonder, are there profound differences between, say, that company of 500 versus that company of 500,000? There can be, there can be, but size doesn't mean complexity. That's the thing is there can be some small clients that have some real complex processes that they've had to enable because of not just technology, but because of lack of knowledge too. I mean, I think that there's, that is most of the problem is even small startups, they really should be thinking about it because as you grow, 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 you don't want to grow your operations. You don't want to grow your HR team and your payroll team to be able to support it. So that's the perfect time to kind of almost avoid 
transformation in the future because you're actually looking at those processes and putting them in place. But I don't want to say that a small client is easier, a large client is bigger. I mean, it's just, that's just size and complexity from a size perspective. It's all around the thought process and how they're managing. Like I'm working with a client right now that's one of my smallest clients, but they have a pretty large HR team supporting them more than they really need. But it's because now I know why, because now they have a ton of manual processes that they're all having to manually do. And they have some complexities in their business model. So I think it's more business model driven than just size for their complexity of the company. That's a very interesting insight. That's fascinating. I hadn't expected you to say that. So that's good. I like a good unexpected answer. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> as we begin to close, what is the best advice you've received in your career? For me, it's, and Kimberly knows what I'm going to say, it's from my wife, who I absolutely adore. This, I'm the dumbest person in my house, including my two dogs. And so my wife said to me years ago, this notion of showing up by being both interested and interesting. So think about that just in, in the context of everyday life, let alone your work life. Being interested means you've taken the time to do the research, to understand, to have active listening, to ask really good, deep and detailed questions, to show a level of fascination and intrigue with both the people and the organizations you encounter. Being interesting means you have something to say, it means you have a point of view, something to offer, et cetera. So that if you get out of balance, if you think you're too interesting or you're too interested, you know, that can create that can manifest all kinds of challenges. But I think if you can maintain a balance of intrinsic curiosity and then trying to offer your own perspective through your own lens, that's the best advice I've ever been given, hands down. Kimberly, how about you? Yeah, so mine is because I was a bulldog. As a young age, I was a bulldog. I, you know, I was a, an attacker. That was kind of a, my way of doing things. I was always like that. And I was in a meeting where somebody attacked me and I went right back Adam. And I was pulled aside and said, count to 10. Before you respond to anything, count to 10 so that I wouldn't be like that. Because I and everybody that ever meets me knows I make a lot of faces. I can't help myself, but I am very transparent. So now I always do that because I really listen to what somebody's telling me so that I'm not reacting right away. And I can really hear what they're saying repeating it back to them so that they know that I heard them and then responding, which has calmed me down the last so many years. But that was one of the best things that was ever told to me because I was very much a bulldog. But Kimberly, in fairness to you, you were a competitive athlete, right? So that was <laughs> just part of how you were right. Sure. So, no, winning matters, I would say sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. But still, you don't need to <laughs> attack everybody. So it's, that's sure. a good thing. I think you're doing amazing with this. So well, true enough. <laughs> Is there anything you either or both want to promote or share about yourself or the company? And if people want to contact you, what would be the best way for them to do that? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Please look us up on LinkedIn by our names. You can go to ia-hr.com. And this is going to be an odd answer again, Seth. I might surprise you. What we want to promote is the eliminating the need to hire consultants. This is like the opposite of what you might expect. We are an anti-consulting advisory firm. We're trying to give people concepts and notions and ideation. And we come into our engagements at the very beginning with the intent to leave through knowledge transfer and long-term enablement because we're trying to eradicate this codependency on consulting firms, which we used to be leaders in our respective organizations and have to hire firms and sort of the ethos of sticking your fingers in and holding on for dear life for as long as possible is counter to us. So listen to what we've had to say. 
hit us up with any questions. We love to just visit with people and learn about their opportunities, challenges, and successes and continue the conversation, like continue to engage on the wonderful questions that you pose today. We just think we as a community need to engage with one another and all the answers are there as long as we ask the right questions. Kimberly, what would you add? Just a quick little story is I hated consultants until I met Mark. It wasn't a thing I liked. I wrote a whole article on this was not the job I was ever really looking for because I always hated being in an organization. We'd hire a consultant to come in and say exactly what we had been saying. Our main focus with our clients is, of course, to build relationships and lasting relationships just so that they have somebody to talk to, but it's also to stand beside them and actually just amplify their voice. To me, that's really important because they need to keep going and we need to teach them how to keep going. So I love that part about who we are and how we continue to stay that way and not get sucked into let's just stay with a client forever just to stay with a client forever. We just don't do that. Excellent. And we'll end on that note, guys. Thank you so much for being here for your time and expertise. Mark and Kimberly of IA, find them on LinkedIn. Thank you guys. Thanks. Thanks, Seth. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Modern Business Operations. You can see the show notes and all of the resources mentioned in today's episode at tonkeen.com slash mbopod. Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe for updates on future episodes. And if you're interested in staying up to date on all things business operations, join the Tonkeen community at tonkeen.com slash community.